Welcome to City Talks, a monthly podcast looking at the big issues facing UK cities and the latest thinking on urban policy. I'm your host, Andrew Carter, from the Think Tank Centre for Cities. I hope you enjoy the episode. Today, my guest is Marvin Rees. Marvin is the Mayor of Bristol. He's also the Chair of Core Cities UK. And he co-chaired the Urban Futures Commission with Andy Haldane, and I'm sure we'll pick up some of the themes there. And I think it is right to say that Marvin is a leading voice in the city's agenda, both in the UK, but also uh, international. Uh, Marvin, it's a great pleasure to have you uh, on the, the episode. No, thanks, wanna, thanks for having me. Oh, let's start with um, just your reflections on you know, leadership. You've been, in, you've been the mayor of Bristol for seven and a half years. You've got another six or so months to go before the position is abolished. Just just reflect on you know what it's like to be mayor. Was it what you thought it was going to be? Um, and then we'll kind of get into that. We'll unpack that a little bit. Um, as with most things, I'll say yes and no. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I've been tuned in to some, for some time to the reality that the world is complicated and good things can have negative consequences for some people and leaders don't just get blank pieces of paper um, and just write down their wish list and suddenly they magically appear through systems and diversion of finance. I I knew that we'd be operating in a world of limited options and difficult trade-offs. I I also thought it would, I also knew that public sector leadership, it was not about command and control, but convene and ask. Uh, that was a chief executive, um, sorry, our, our former chief constable, Andy Marsh, used that phrase once. World-class public sector leadership is not command and control, it's your ability to convene and, and, and influence. So, I was, I, you know, I was aware of that. I think the things that have taken me by surprise, uh, even if I knew them, but the emotional engagement uh, with it is the level of profile it, it's brought. Also, the kind of negativity around it as well. I mean, fundamentally, we've been trying to build houses and make sure children are fed and be very aspirational for Bristol. But I think some people have got me tied up with some world economic uh, conspiracy to entrench neoliberalism in the lives of the <laughs> I mean, and, and, you know, all that noise that goes on around on, on social media. That's been an interesting uh, aspect of uh, leadership that you couldn't, you get used to it. But it's very difficult to prepare for it until you're in it. Yeah, that's great. What quite a few other uh, mayors, particularly that I've you know spoken to, and you've spoken to them as well. Something that they often say. Uh, I'm interested in your thought on it. That you know they say, you know, I try to take a place-based first approach rather than a politics-first uh, approach. I mean, what what do you think about that? I mean, is that is that a, is that a useful and good way to th- kind of think about not only you know how you've interpreted the job, but the role of, you know, the role of the mayor as well, which is the mayor of the place, right? I mean, that's the whole point. It's not that you're elected by your political peers. You are, you know, you're elected directly by the the good folk of um, of Bristol. Yeah, that that's that's the fundamental difference, I think, with a mayoral position. So I'm in the Labour Party because I believe in the group of people and. And the, the priorities they've come together under, right? So I'm in Labour, but when you're a mayor, you're directly elected by the city, and ultimately your accountability is to the electorate. I think, and then I, I'm not saying that other models aren't good. I'm just saying it strikes me the difference is 
if I was a leader, uh, I would to retain my leadership position. I have to serve my party. That it's sometimes priority because you, it's your councillors that select you. As a mayor, I have I have to impress the city constantly. So it automatically pulls my attention outside of this council chamber and outside of the council, interestingly, to the city to work not just with the tools of the local authority, but to convene and try to get an alignment of the tools that's in your health service, unions, further education, higher education, private sector, and get all that into alignment to get outcomes for the city. Again, because one of the real, uh, when I was first elected, I convened a meeting of city, what I call city leaders. We had about 70 people turn up from public, private sector, unions, faith groups, um, and there was the, that in the room that morning, there was a footprint of about six billion pounds. And between us, we employed 70,000 people. So I said, well, look, we're all in different organizations and sectors, but we all have a common interest in Bristol. If we all on this morning decided to focus on one or three priorities, what could we not do? If we were to say what to halve domestic violence, you're not just looking at a public health campaign. You know, you've got the universities working with their student bodies. You've got employers messaging through their staff, for example. You know, we, we've got phenomenal presence of power uh, to, to start wielding. The mayoral model has, there's an inbuilt draw to work like that because you cannot just work with a council if you want to get things done for your place. Yeah, yeah no, that's a great point. And you are a man, you are a man that likes a plan. Uh, I've heard you several times, you know, quote your, uh, your army friend about have a plan any plan just have a bloody plan um, yes. and was that the sort of but the ethos of bringing the role of the mayor to bring those different interests together to convene them as you said that was I guess behind you know your approach around having a Bristol plan a, a kind of city plan which wasn't a land use plan in the typical way that we think about them but actually was a try to set out a real ambition and a set of goals and that really uh, take the city forward and draw on loads of different interests, whether they're in the public, the private, the civic, the community or whatever. It was that was that your thing? Because that was pretty much your thinking from the from the outset. Yeah. Yeah. And some of it was informed by my time when I was director of the local strategic partnership in Bristol. We had all these chief executives, you know, and, and they were all good earning, you know, we'd pull them together four times a year, probably more than that. The collective salary presence in the room was over, you know, like two million plus pounds. And there was no overarching framework within, within which they were working. There was no common destination to which they were pointing. Now, if we asked, everyone probably say the same things, you know, be an ambitious tackle poverty. But we never written it down and said, why are we here? What's the single line sentence description of the city we're pointing at? And so when I came in, as well as thinking about how do you get the collection of institutions working together to shape life in place with all their powers and sovereignties, which are all interdependent, but, you know, in their own worlds. How do we get us all pointing at the same thing? So, yeah, in that in those first gatherings, we said, well, how do we want to be able to describe Bristol in 2050? All right. And once we've agreed on that, now let's agree on the sequence of challenges, outcomes, initiatives that we need to implement to get us on that journey. So what, what do we need to be doing in 2048 to be where we want in 2050? Now, obviously, the further away, the further away, the harder it gets, right? But again, it comes back to the point. Make a plan, any plan, just make a bloody plan. Write something down, even if you're going to change it in 10 years because the world has changed around you. But write something down 
so that we've got some sort of structure and framework within which we can negotiate, surface our difference of perspectives and understanding and priorities, understand the trade-offs that have to be uh, that we have to navigate to become uh, that thing. You know, and that, and that so that's you know that is the approach we're taking. You've got to know where you're where you're trying to get to. You know, that was that you, you were doing that very early on in your you know in your first mayoral term. I mean, obviously, you're coming towards the end of your second mayoral term. In terms of that approach of trying to galvanize and convene, what would you would you do? What would you do differently, or would or would you think that the progress has been made, and you would urge you know whatever happens in the future to to you know to adhere to to that perspective and to you know to that particular approach? I I, I think one of the missing pieces of my time actually was the was the cross-party engagement in that. So I, 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 I mean, it's a bit of a story about my time. I did come in with a cross-party cabinet. And, you know, it was the kind of the magic, you know, everyone post-political world and all that type of stuff. Um, the, tr the truth is, you know, trying to put a cross-party cabinet together was very difficult. You know, everyone needs to want to play. <laughs> yes. And I, you know, and, and I did have to say, you know, if we're going to have a cross-party cabinet, I'm not expecting the end of political debate and political difference, but there does need to be a difference in the kind of our relation, in the tone of our relationship. And there's only so long I can hold my hands out to you when you're chewing on my fingers, you know, and, you know, and having people, you know, these are relationships of trust. And it's not just about the trust of the individuals in the cabinet, it's about the trust of the group of people with them as well, um, in terms of the parties. So, so that, I think we could have been, I, I, I think the, it hasn't been fatal, and it, you know, and, and our one city approach has been, I would suggest, has been very successful and very positive for the city. But, but there would have been an additional level uh, to that city unity and alignment if the, you know, if, if, if we had the strength of relationships cross party to have had meaningful cross party um, engagement in it. But that requires trust, and trust requires trustworthiness. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. it's night. No, that's a very good point. Um, I mean, one of the issues, uh, it's not the only issue you focus on on many, but it's at the heart, I think, of you know other issues that that you are focused on is is housing. And you know, there's a question there around housing because it relates, you know, as you eloquently said, to issues around social equity, to issues around economic opportunity, to issues around the climate crisis, to the issues around air quality and you know literally uh the health of um of the population also there's the you know productivity it's, you know it's it's one of those sorts of issues that particularly for bristol it's just at the heart of many of those other conversations that people are having just say a little bit about you know how you think about and you know your your approach to and then i guess you know experience of of that housing discussion and and you know how how that sort of manifests itself over the over the period yeah, but there's an interesting quote I came across. I'm going to butcher the year, but I'm going to have a stab at 18, uh, 1963. After world peace, urban planning is the most important issue in the world World Health Organization, right? Wow. Housing, is, housing is it, right? It's the, it's the biggest determinant of, I think, of our impact on climate, both in terms of the kind of homes we build and where we build them. It, it's about whether people can even afford to live in a place. I, I think unaffordable housing can, can underpin 
uh, can create environments that are fertile for political extremism because people feel hopeless and lost and they lose their connection with a place. So housing is it for me. It's this public health, you know, intervention. But so the housing in Bristol captures the real dilemma of so, dilemmas of so much that we face in, in any city, right? Bristol has 42 square miles and we're not getting any more land. That is it. We have 472,000 people. All right. We've got 20,000 on the waiting list. It was 11,000 when I was elected, but we've built houses over the last seven years faster than anyone's built in decades. Right. So we've got a growing population. It's going to be 550,000 by 2050. So our population is growing, outstripping. So we just have to, we have to sprint just to stand still. 1,300 households in temporary accommodation, which is a financial, which is a financial drain on the organization as well. Uh, mm -hmm. TA, like it is for, for many authorities. So wicked challenges, and that housing crisis sits on top of entrenched inequalities, race and class inequalities in Bristol that map onto the city's uh, geography and gain in terms of housing, right? Housing creates and housing reflects those inequalities. Um, and we have to meet that challenge in the context of a climate and ecological emergency, right? So we have to build houses fast, we have to build the right houses, we have to build efficiency into the city's future. This was a subject of my TED talk, actually, <laughs> just to reference my... Uh, my my viewing numbers there, but <laughs> but um, yeah, watch they'll, they'll spike. Hopefully, once people listen uh, to this, they're then going they'll consume even more of you, Marvin. You can put the link in afterwards. I yeah. will definitely. We will definitely put the link in on the uh, on the um, show page. So yeah, uh, housing is is housing is it, uh, and I think I hope that going into the election, and I think um, Andy Rain has picked this up. The Labour Party is going to be a government that says yeah. You know what we are going to do is make this a country in which people can afford to live um not just to survive but to live and so we've really um we've really made a big deal of prioritizing housing but then you get the dilemmas the trade-offs right so i was in a full council meeting and uh just over a year ago and i had three public statements literally there were just three the first person said do not build on greenfield land right and the other two clapped, clapped her. Great, great statement. The next person said, solve the housing crisis. All right, great statement. The other two clapped her. What the third, the third person said, do not build at high densities and height. Uh, you know, and they all clapping because it's all against the council. But I said, you three need to talk to each other because you can't have all those three positions. Once you agree to build, if you, you, can, you can oppose building, fine. Then stand by the consequences of that. For the housing crisis but once you say build right every house every home you do not put on top of a brownfield site which means higher density and will mean height at some point you increase the pressure on greenfield and actually we don't have enough brownfield to take our housing need in the future anyway so there's already pressure on greenfield um, and that kind of dilemma those kind of wicked trade-offs is is at the heart of leadership what we need is a commentary around it that, that deals with that and doesn't just focus on the fact that there's a row where it's controversial or there's a dispute. The population needs to understand the trade-offs. If it doesn't, it will just be angry and it won't be it won't be able to recognize uh, responsible leadership making difficult decisions. And I don't mean difficult decisions in terms of our current government because it's cities that make difficult decisions. National governments just create the framework that compel us to make difficult decisions. Yeah. And I mean, with the, you know, with a wand as it were, I mean, how would you do you have a thought as to how you unlock, you know, those inevitable 
pensions and you know a broader acceptance of the trade-offs involved that you can't have everything you're gonna have to give up something in order to get something else i mean you know you've been at it you've been doing it you've had some successes you know given a fair wind you would have you you would have done more and you would like to have done more and you know that the city needs to do more in the future you live in bristol it's not just a sort of you know intellectual argument for you your family's you know, uh, livelihood is kind of based on that. Just, just your thought of how how do you think that gets resolved over the, you know, over the short, medium, or longer term? You know, if you think it through to twenty fifty, as you, as you say, in the in the one city plan. So there's a there's a side to me that thinks it can't be resolved. You know, maybe one of the sobering elements of where we are at this point in human history is to recognise that some of the challenges we face can't be solved. Um, I don't want to be hopeless about it, but you know, it, I think that we've gone through history, and I think this. I, I thought this around COVID that we were we were presented the, with with the reality that at some points there are some moments with with all the human will in the world and with all the technology at our fingertips, there are times when there's a reality that's more powerful than than humanity, right? Uh, you may be able to roll some elements of it back through time, but it's going to land on us. Um, but that's brand universal side thing. I mean, what would I do um, in the short term? It, it all takes money, right? The right kind of money as well. Not come in, smash and grab, get our big return money. It needs patient money that's invested with a recognition that you're, you're creating the conditions for future economic prosperity or economic uh, challenge as well. One of the most frustrating, I got for this in one of the most frustrating uh, challenges I've received, probably from a political party that we associate with the environment, <laughs> to put it that way, is all that's needed is political will. And as I said, no, it takes a little bit more than that. Otherwise, I'd have ended racism and sexism. It takes political will and billions of pounds. And when you look nationally, billions and trillions of pounds. Uh, if you think all it takes is political will, then you know you're doomed to uh, to failure. But we need the money. We need we need we need to front load investment in flood defence, um, preparing brownfield land, right, and and uh, backroom capacity of local government. One of the hidden costs of austerity since 2010 has not just been the loss of you know I'll get people come and protest for libraries, public toilets and parks, that's it, save our park. No one ever comes to campaigns for lawyers, planners, and accountants. It's that backroom capacity that makes stuff happen. Our planning team here is dealing with a backlog. I, I, you know, We're driving them 24 seven because we want to get the houses built. There's a finite capacity to any human uh, being and team, right? But the, the austerity has, has totally eroded that, that skills base, that backroom capacity, that enables local government to actually play some of that soft role as well as a technical role in leading a place and creating the conditions in which things can happen. And on the point, uh, is a huge part of our role to enable other people to get stuff done. We can't deliver on housing without the private sector. We have to be working with local government. So the capacity to enable, not just to direct deliver, is absolutely essential. And we've lost that. Yeah, that's a great. That is a great point. And I. You know, it's the sort of as you said, it's the one of the hidden uh, hidden negative effects, really, because you you know if, of the um, of the process over the last decade or so, where we've seen quite severe cuts to you know to the way the local you know the resources available to local government, and then the way that they get 
access to, to resources. Um, let, let's let's finish, um, Marvin, just with a because you you obviously instrumental in your role as mayor of Bristol. But as I introduced you, you know, you're also the chair of the Core Cities UK. You were the co-chair of the Urban Futures Commission with um, the, the very good Andy Haldane. You know, you play on the biggest stage. You know, you're part of the city's agenda more broadly, not only in the UK, but internationally. Just, I mean, where where do you think we are? What's the, how do you characterise the moment, you think, in terms of the, the articulation of, you know, the relevance and the role of cities in trying to grapple with and make progress on some of those big, wicked issues that you, you know, you were you were talking about? How would you sort of summarise where, where you think we are on that agenda in the UK? Yeah, that's a really interesting, but I think it is a moment, actually. It's, it's been a big moment, stretched over a number of years, but it's coming to a head. So I think we're in a world at the moment in which increasing numbers of people are seeing that the current structure of global governance is unable to cope with the, the world and the challenges the way they are. From climate change to migration crisis to pandemics to urban security, in many, so many of our challenges are post-national and national governments the current global structure was built to deal with a post-war world and post-World War II world. And we are like 40, 50, 60 years beyond that now. And the world has changed around us, right? But we haven't changed the model of global governance. And, and so when people are recognizing that's not working, then I think people are recognizing that actually cities can be major players here again um, for a number of reasons. One is for cities to flourish and we need them to flourish. Um, cities need to be able to shape the national and international context in which they operate, right? You can't just leave your tools inside your city boundaries. We're, we have to be able to shape migration policy, climate policy, all those things that impact on us. But secondly, we're the solution, right? So, you know, if you decarbonize the world city, for example, point made in my TED talk, um, <laughs> you, would, you would solve most of the problem because most of the world live in cities. You can reach more human lives more quickly through cities than you can through other forms of human organization. So you can make those lives more efficient, requiring fewer of the world's resources. Cities offer density. So there's a massive opportunity for increased efficiency through, uh, through the use of that, exploiting that density. And I think people are seeing that. But the important thing is that cities aren't then just a policy tool to be wielded by national politicians. You must have the political voice of cities shaping the context so they're better able to deliver. Now, that takes a... I'm, so I'm talking about iterations of global governance, not a change of global governance. And the next iteration, I would say, has to involve the leaders of cities and networks of cities as equal partners in shaping national and international policy, particularly around finance. So you have things like the SDG Urban Finance Committee now, with, chaired by Jeffrey Sachs and the mayors of Paris and Rio, looking at finance. How do you get finance? You have 3CI in the UK working with city leaders in the UK to look at finance. How do you get the money into the hands of the city to get uh, to get those things done. That's a great way, a great sort of uh, agenda uh, and a kind of perspective to finish. Um, Marvin, as always, it's been brilliant talking to you. Thank you very much for being part of City Leaders. Uh, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of City Talks brought to you by Centre for Cities. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher by searching Centre for Cities. Please rate, review and subscribe if you like what you heard. You can also follow the centre on Twitter at Centre4Cities or like us on LinkedIn for the latest updates on what the centre is up to. If you have any comments on the episode or suggestions for topics we should cover in the future, 
we'd love to hear from you. Do tweet us or send an email to info at centerforcities.org. The music was from Palace Fires by Johnny Foreigner. Use with permission and all rights are reserved.